What's up? Welcome to Opening Set, Season 4, Episode 7. This is the voice of King Most and Brandon Shotgun. As always, is my man, John Reyes, producer extraordinaire of the show. Before we get into today's special guest, here's a little housekeeping. You can find Opening Set on Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your good old-fashioned content. Please tell your friends, repost, like, share, all that good stuff. And you can find me, Hey King Most, on Instagram as well as Twitch, also on Bandcamp and SoundCloud as well. My man John Rays, you can find him on Twitch under Stank Palmer, also under Bandcamp under John Rays. That's spelled J O N R E Y E S. All right. And today's very, very special guest is a Southern gentleman, by all means, our dude, DJ Wally Sparks. In this conversation, we get to hear about Wally's philosophy of joy as a weapon and how it really, really applies to DJs in this year or any other year. Check it out. I think we're vessels for healing for other people. That's what I think we are. You know, I think we're here to provide some space for people to take some of the weight off their shoulders. Even if it's an hour, even if it's 30 minutes, just some peace and some joy. You know what I mean? Because even with all the bullshit that's flying around, all the bullshit that's going on in the world, I see joy as a weapon and I approach my life like that. I'm here because I know you pissed off. I want to give you a piece of happiness so you can still realize that that part of you is still there and still valid. I tend to view what we do as DJs. We're on the front line of a different type of battle. We're battling to help people not lose themselves emotionally. So the reason why I love that quote, because it's just so poignant and just hits home. I think this is something that would be moving in any other year, 2019, 2018, 2016, what have you. But 2020 being such a chaotic year, with goes without saying, to kind of hear somebody really kind of bring it back to what we do and explain it and give it context. And just the idea of joy as a weapon is kind of radical if you think about it, especially as DJs. And that's why it just really stood out. Also in this conversation, we talk about Wally Sparks' HBCU experience, how dancing got him to DJing, roller skiing in Atlanta, and his life right now being a Twitch DJ. So the reason why I loved my time with Wally Sparks is that he's a music lover first and foremost, who just happens to be a DJ. And it comes across in so much when he talks about. There's a, you know, obviously a lot of uh, detail and things like that, but there's this enthusiasm that easily comes across in his, in his voice. And also, you know, he kind of connects the dots with wrestling and sports. And the conversation kind of just, you know, kinda, he kind of took us to school on, on his philosophy. And it ended with me losing a bet. And now I owe him, I still owe him 10 subscriptions on his Twitch channel. So, uh, Wally, when you hear this, hopefully by then I will, uh, you know, pony it up and get my end of the bargain, you know. But in the meantime, go find him on Twitch under DJ Wally Sparks. You can find him on Instagram, baby under DJ Wally Sparks. We don't know. It's a little fishy right now. But I think anytime you see something dope and awesome happening in Atlanta and it's music first, you will find him there. So there you go. Wally Sparks, King Mo's John Ray's opening set. Let's go. Be safe. And Merry Christmas. All right. Peace. First things first, this whole season is very COVID focused. So mm-hmm. I'd like to ask homies, how are you today? Today is good, man. It was rough for me in the beginning. But now, man, now that you know that the day is going on and I ain't going front, man, Twitch kind of turned my whole perspective around on a whole lot of shit, you know? So I'm happy to have found it and I'm happy that I'm able to connect with more like-minded people, people that I normally wouldn't even get to see DJ or number like I get to talk to, you know what I mean? 
Yeah, for me personally, that's been a big thing. It's homies that live in different markets, different countries, or if they do come to San Francisco, it's like, oh, we're both working. If we're not on the same bill, I'll take you to the airport or something like that. So that's very true. But you said something at first for you is really rough. Do you mind to elaborate on that a little bit? I had spent the past four years or so working on this party with my partners, this party, well, multiple parties, but this one party in particular called The Groove. It's an all R&B party that I produced with this group of individuals called uh, The Work Crew. It's a party I started by myself. I tried it by myself for like six months, didn't have much success with it at all. An opportunity came where they were approached and asked to produce an R&B event at a hotel in downtown Atlanta. And instead of them trying to... uh, come up with something of their own or just try and build something from scratch. They approached me and said, hey, what do you think about partnering up? You're doing what they're asking us to do already. You have a brand with it. You seem to be passionate about what you're playing. We know you're nice. You know how we get down. What do you think about partnering up? And at that point, I was like, fuck it. Because, you know, I, like I said, I've been failing for six months. So why not? You know what I mean? So we started and immediately, man, it clicked out. And then over time, we built it up to the point where we, uh, before our last event was in February of this year and we were doing the party. This party is not anything other than just a party. It's four DJs playing music and we were in like a 1500 seat venue. We were selling it out consistently. We had grew up to that point, but we had graduated to like a 500 cap venue And we had sold that out consistently for like almost three years straight. And then we got to the venue that we were in this year, which was a 1500 cap venue. And we beginning to start to sell that out. You know what I mean? Then all that shit stopped. All that shit came to a screeching halt. And so that had all of us like down. You know what I mean? And, you know, two of us, myself and uh, one of my partners, Xavier, we both have children. Our children are actually the same age. We have, I think his daughter is eight. My son will be nine. Me and him understand it, you know, the pressure was on, you know, for both of us. And when that happened and when everything just shut down, this large source of income that we were both relying on just was immediately taken away from us. And that was a difficult thing for both of us to deal with. And particularly me, because I just didn't know what to do. Like, man, I ain't been doing I ain't done nothing in the last 22 years but DJ. I've had like some odd jobs here and there. Like when I moved to Atlanta, I took a job. I worked at Enterprise Rent-A-Car. I, you, I don't know if you've ever been to Enterprise Rent-A-Car. You've seen them dudes in the back that wash the cars and clean them or whatever. I did that. I moved here in 2011. I took that job in 2014 because in 2013 is when I stopped touring with Crit. So I moved here in large part because I was touring with Crit. And, you know, all the travel would be going through Atlanta. And he lived here. Chattanooga's not that far from Atlanta, but... It's like an hour and 30 minute drive, two hours tops, depending on what part of town you're coming from. But it just didn't make no sense for me to be in Chattanooga if I was going to be doing that much traveling. I'm moving around 200 plus days a year on the road. So that ended in 2013. I had to do something. So I took that little job at Enterprise. That held me down for the two years that I did it. But other than that, I have no other skill but DJing. I have other skills, but in a resume corporate world, I have no other skill but DJing. You know what I mean? That's the one job I've had consistently since 1997. Yeah. You know? You know, I think we've attached so much of our identities to being DJs and then also Mm -hmm. our success and that gives us validation. And then for Mm -hmm. you, it's like, I got to be different with my money and I have a child to provide for. So, yo, props to you for just the same. When I asked you, how was your day? And you said, okay, the fact that you can kind of, you know, 
Yeah, man. You know, it took some real deep ass soul searching. I ain't gonna lie to you. Yeah. You know, there was some trying times, man. You know, that was a whole lot of other things going on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So. I know. It's the year 2020. I was gonna, I mean, you know, COVID, non-COVID, uprests, an man. election. Oh, man. For us, not today, but yesterday in California, I'm in San Francisco, uh, the sky was literally an orange red. I was just about to ask you, is the sky still orange? No, now it's just like, just gray. But I don't even mention is that yesterday was a day like none other in my whole life. I've been in San Francisco my whole life, pretty much, you know, Bay Area, whatever. And I've never, no one's, I mean, anybody in this planet would be like, yo, the sky's red. Like, how is that? So, but yeah, we still just, we're all kind of here, just kind of going forward and just doing our best and doing what we can, talking about wrestling, <laughs> talking about, you know, just where we're all at right now. Right. So specifically to Atlanta, like I, I was under the impression, tell me if I'm wrong, that Atlanta was very resistant to social distancing and masks and whatnot. How, how was it in terms of through the lens of the nightlife scene in, in clubs? So there's yes and there's no. The people are out, like they are out. But then, then there are other people that are like, yeah, like me. And I'm like, I'm in the house. Like I pretty much decided that I'm not DJing outside until 2021. You know what I mean? I'm just not doing it, you know, but I am very fortunate and blessed to have put myself in a position where I have to do that. I got partners out here that can't, that's got to go outside and DJ right now because that's how they get their money. You know what I mean? I got partners out here that got to go to work, you know, because they just got to go to work. I get it. You know, I understand, you know, but fortunately for me, I'm in a position where I can say, you know what, I'm just going to take this time and figure out a way to reset. But there are people that are out. You know, when the first shutdown happened... Because <laughs> you're in your second one, right? You just went back yeah. to phase one. Okay, I, just for context. Yeah, Exactly. When the first shutdown happened, everybody was on their best behavior and everybody was doing what they were supposed to do. Wasn't nobody doing shit. Wasn't nothing open. People was masked up. But Atlanta is a... I don't want to say it's a party town. It's a cultural town. And a large part of that culture is nightlife. And not just like the Black Hollywood compound, 1145... Gold Club, Magic City, all the shades on, Strokers, Follies, all that. Not just that. There are places like the Sound Table. There are places like the Basement in East Atlanta. It's whole different types of scenes, and they all thrive. They all thrive. Atlanta has a very, very strong house music scene. Very strong. And some of those guys, you know, two of those guys, DJ Kimbin and Salah Nase, they were early to Twitch. I actually approached them and got game from them when I first started digging into Twitch, trying to figure out what the fuck was going on. Yeah, for sure. When you said it was people were going out, nightclubs were still pretty much, they were closed. Yeah. Now, I guess prior to going back to phase one again, I saw videos. I mean, I just saw uh, something CNN posted about Gucci Man hosting the city's biggest party and just seeing video of people out and no mask. And Yeah, people outside right now. Like Atlanta nightlife is almost back to operating at 100%. And we say 100% as if nothing's changed. No mask. As if nothing no, changed. No yeah. It's weird, man, but that's how it is. There were some people that were doing smart shit. Like there were some promoters here that came up with this thing called a parking lot concert. They go to an amphitheater and then they put a big ass stage in the middle of a parking lot and people would, you know, they go see the show, but they wouldn't leave their cars. Now that shit is out the window. Now it's just turn up time again. Yeah. You know what I mean? Also, I want to say the governor was pretty much on some, oh, this ain't real. Does he denying the whole oh, thing? Oh, yeah, so man. It didn't help, right? Yeah, fuck that motherfucker. You know, I don't pay attention to anything he say. I just listen to the experts and who are the experts in their field. And they say I should be masked up when I go outside. So shout out, I mask up when I go outside, if I go outside. Yeah. You know what I mean? And a question I like to ask all the guests so far is like, what would it take for you to be, okay, I'm going to DJ again? So one, 
for me at least. I don't know if you watched The Wire or not. Of course. The price of the brick done went up for a show. That's number one. <laughs> Say that again one time, man. Say that again. The price of the brick done went up. Unless I had a prior relationship with you before all this shit happened, if you come to me and you want my service and you want Wallace Sparks, you're going to have to pay a premium price. That's just how it is. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, people say, oh, well, you ain't going to get gigs. Man, I'm straight. I'll be, I be fine. I'll be okay. You know, I'll figure out some new shit. This online streaming shit, that is going to be a mainstay in my repertoire going forward. You know what I mean? So that's number one. That's number one That to get me outside. You're going to have to come up with that bag. You know what I mean? Number two is going to have to be in a place that I feel safe. And again, there are a lot of places where I feel safe, like the places that I played before, then people who I had relationships with before. Our relationship is going, you know, if I had a really like, like bars like L Bar and the basement and the music room, places where I would play frequently all the time and uh, places where I would produce my events at, whatever we were doing before everything got shut down, we would continue to do. But anybody new coming to me, you got to have the bag right and you got to have whatever venue that you choose to do your thing in. That's paramount. I have to feel safe in that environment. And then three, I just got to want to do it. You know what I mean? Like, if I don't want to do it, I ain't going to do it. You know what I mean? I have long had a bad habit of saying yes to things that I know I probably didn't want to do just because of prior to me living in Atlanta, I came from a place that I often say has a curse of complacency. My hometown is very, very easy to live in. It's a great place. It's really, really easy to live in. And a lot of people from my hometown have never left that are still there. And because it's such an easy place to live in, and that has caused me in the past to squander opportunities that have come my way just because I was like, you know what? I think I'm all right where I am. But now that I'm in Atlanta and I made that jump and I've worked myself into the point where I have the latitude to be able to say no to things, shout out, I be saying no. You know what I'm saying? So those are my top three things, man. You got to have your bag right. Your venue got to be safe. And I just got to want to do it. I want to ask you, is when you say the price of the brick went up, is that because that price now includes like a hazard pay? Yeah. Yeah, man. My, my, I, ain't, I ain't worked for six months. You know what I'm saying? I ain't been working for six months. I'm appreciative of all the tips and everything that people give me, you know, via Cash App and Venmo or whatever when I'm streaming online and the people that subscribe to my Twitch channel and all that sort of thing. I'm very, very appreciative of all that. But, bro, that's not what I was doing. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was getting into the mid to high five figure range just off DJing. You know what I mean? I'm not even saying that just to brag. That's just how it was, you know, because I was working all the time. You know what I mean? That's not me like toot my own horn or anything. Like I don't want to come off as seeming like I'm some arrogant dude just because I'm out here doing it. But that's just the reality of the thing. And all of that has gone away. You know, I've six months of no work. I need to catch up. Unemployment is not gonna float me forever. Yeah, I'm glad you cleared up why you should get paid more. Cause in my head it'd be like, oh, hazard pay. I could get sick. But yeah, I would have totally just not have put that in the price. And I think Hopefully everyone that's you know listening right now, they hear the podcast, they can fact that it into their prices. Like, oh, we need to make up for back payment and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's, that's game. And then you just mentioned the hometown you're from. 
Chattanooga, Tennessee. Chattanooga, Tennessee. And born and raised. Born and raised. That's in your bloodstream. That's you it's know my blood. It's on it's on my arm. I got a tattoo. I was about to say, okay, there's gotta be something significant about Chattanooga. Um yeah. what's the DJ history, the DJ culture of Chattanooga, Tennessee? All right. So the Chattanooga DJ history starts with this gentleman who I learned from and who was my mentor named DJ Mix. DJ Mix was um he was pretty much the guy, at least far as from me growing up. I don't know who was doing what prior to him, but for me, people of my generation, he was the man. He was the man for a long, long time, like a 20 plus year run of being on top in that city. You know what I mean? What was he playing? He played everything. So Chattanooga is a city that's pretty much radio would dictate what was hot. That were music is, I'm sure. But most people in a party setting, if you won't go to a party, whatever you heard on the radio is what you would hear at a party. Which was weird because, you know, there would be times where like a record that would catch on nationwide, say like 12 Gauge Donkey Butt, that would be a popular record in the party. But you know what else would be a popular record in the party? They reminisce over you by P-Rock and CL Smooth because it was on the radio. You know what I'm saying? You would hear both of those kind of records in the party. And Mix was a music head, you know. He was a music head that liked all of that stuff, but he also knew how to serve his audience. You know what I mean? So he would sneak stuff in every now and again and it would make people like me who were also music heads that were in the party like he would play like you know hip-hop and dance hall had like their first like oh, mesh in the early 90s kenny doe puja bantai yeah, yeah okay. uh ghetto uh, super cat ghetto red hot all that kind of shit, crackers, you know yeah i love oh that. yeah you know what's so funny i've been getting back to that a lot because I was a small child when those records came out. I loved them then, but hearing them now again because I feel dance hall is back and the whole edit game is kind of, it reminds me of that whole like party break, but with like bass, but continue on. Yeah, I'm sorry. Rag Ragamuffin, I think is what they was calling it back then. But anyway, like I said, Chattanooga DJ history starts, in my eyes, starts with DJ Mix. He is the foundation for every DJ that has ever come out of Chattanooga, myself included. You know what I mean? Like anybody that has any kind of success as a DJ in Chattanooga is standing on the shoulders of DJ Mix, 100%. And is he still active? Yeah, he's still working now. Wow. Still working he now. He still runs Chattanooga. He kind of just does his thing now whenever he can, but he's still working. I know that much. And he still can get busy. So he, he can put the new joints and, and rock the classics and be like, yeah, I'm still in this. Yeah. I mean, he's nice on the turntables too. Like he was a turntablist before I knew what a turntablist was. Like, he would tell me he came up on people like Joe Cooley and Sir Jinx and Mr. Mix from Two Live Crew. Like, you know, people that used to really get down on the turntables. DJ Smurf, Kids and Rock, all them kind of people. That's the way he was, too. He was nice. And he's still nice now. I love that. You know I, what I mean? I love when OGs, they don't, like, get complacent. They're like, no, nah, I could still run. I mean, I can't run as fast, but I could still run. You know, I, yeah. I love that. I love that. That's that's like Straight up. That's DJ Mix for sure. Like, you know. If, if he get motivated enough, man, he'll serve you up real good, man. <laughs> yeah, I love that, man. Like, you know, don't ever assume just because uh, someone's either younger or older or whatever, it can cook you up and serve you up real fast. You got into DJing. Was it through him or was it something else? Oh, uh, He was one of my main influences, but I just love music, man. And like, I used to go to all the parties that Mix and his people would throw. And I was well known in Chattanooga for being a pretty good dancer. I would go to the parties and I would dance my ass off like crazy like i wouldn't stop you know everybody know hey man that's a little wally that could dance you know what i mean so i had a similar history like jermaine dupree in that regard where you know i just came up as a dancer and i just enjoyed being at the party and the reason i enjoyed being at the party in hindsight is because i wanted to be there for the music the music is why i was really there 
sure, I enjoyed dancing and having fun and all that. But the real reason I was there, now that I'm older, I know I was there because of the music. The music is what drew me in. I would be dancing and I would have the circle of people around me doing my thing like, oh, look at this, you know, look at that. And what they didn't know is I'm looking at Mix like, that's the coolest motherfucker in here. Not me. That's the cool motherfucker right there. I'm looking at him like, bro, this is, man, he is in complete control of this whole environment. Like, this is the best thing ever. I didn't even realize that those seeds were being planted in my brain for me to be a DJ back then. I was just enjoying myself. Was it like a certain name or style of dances you were doing or were you just kind of doing like whatever? I mean, I was doing whatever kid playing MC Hammer was doing. Whatever I saw on TV, whatever Scoob and Scrap Lover was doing, whatever MC Hammer was doing, whatever kid and play was doing, whoever was dancing in videos on your own TV raps, that's what I was doing. You know what I'm saying? I want to add that I think listening and reading about like, you know, the OGs of the 90s, whether they're rappers or DJs, producers, they always come from like a different discipline. It's not foreign. Like I remember Redman said he was a DJ, still DJs. Like I think Rakim DJ didn't play drums. It's always there's always Yo. something else that gets him to the point of whatever they're known for. So Rakim can get busy, man. He he can juggle. Yeah, I think that's kind of like a product of just the times. I don't know if it happens as much as today, but it's always like interesting. Like oh shit, like they are music people. So you're dancing and you got a whole circle. What made you say, no, nah, I want to be that guy? Because it looks like for listening to what you're saying, you have all the attention. The girls are loving you. You're the best thing at the party. What made you say, no, nah, I want to be the guy in the music? Uh, maybe I think he was in control. He was making it happen. I think that's what it was. And then the real reason is he had all the music. I wanted all the music. I didn't know where to get some of like all the 12 inches of stuff he was playing back then. I didn't know where to get that shit. You know, and if he played something that I never heard before and I knew only he had it, I was like, well, I guess I got to be a DJ. That's the only way I'm able to get it. So were you just buying 12s, not because you're a DJ, just to have the music at that point? Yeah, that didn't come to later. Like, I didn't really get into DJing until later. Like, that was in the early 90s. I didn't start DJing until I was a freshman in college. That was in 1997. Well, let me ask you this. And so, you know, doing my research on you, you talk about HBCUs. Yeah. An artistic, we just, I think it was our second to last guest. He'd kind of shed a lot of light about his HBCU experience in Florida. And I know not all HBCUs are the same. Right. For our folks that are listening, I do not know what an HBCU is. It's, uh, HBCU is an acronym for Historically Black College and University. They're all over the country, but they're clustered more in the southeastern part of the United States. And they are higher learning institutions that are designed to educate young black people. I went to Lane College, Lane College in Jackson, Tennessee. I went there for one year. My HBCU experience wasn't as pleasant as many people's was, but I will say I'm very fortunate to have had it because if I hadn't gone there, I wouldn't have taken the path to get me in this chair talking to you. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. A whole career was birthed from that. It was, the st- academics was tough. Financials were oh, tough. Well, no, I wasn't that. Like, actually, I went there on an academic scholarship. They were the only people to offer me a full academic scholarship. That's the reason I went. I got accepted to uh, Clark Atlanta University. I got accepted to Howard University. I got accepted to Hampton. And I got accepted to almost every school that I applied to, except for, uh, uh, it was one of them North Carolina schools. I think it might've been A&T that I did get. Were you a 4.0 high school student? I was more like 3.6, you know what I mean? But I was a terrible student. I was a terrible student because I don't like school. I was just smart. I am a bit of a slickster. And I would figure out ways to prevent myself from having to deal with school. And one of the ways was just being smart. <laughs> the smarter I was, the more lenient my teachers were with me. 
Wow. And I was able to get away with stuff. You know what I mean? I was hoping you said you loved academics, you studied, but you actually, you just admitted you, you were the opposite of that. Oh, man. I, I, was trying, I was trying to figure out ways to not do school at all. You know what I mean? And so I guess that is, you had all this free time and to kind of get over on grades and your teachers, you kind of picked up the DJing thing. That how it all fit? Well, kind of, sort of. Even as a freshman in college, I just enjoyed, uh, it always comes back to the same thing, man. I'm just a music lover. I just enjoy music. One day, a light bulb went up in my head because I was watching television and I saw uh, there was this show on BET called Planet Groove that Rachel from Caribbean oh, Rhythms yes, so yes. fine. But I digress. <laughs> she was on there with, uh, with Kid Capri. Every now and again, they would have DJs come on the show and they have DJs DJ in studio and they have, like, I guess it was probably BET staff or whatever, but they have them in the studio dancing around so it would look like a party on television. They would talk to the DJs, well, depending on who the DJ was. So this one was Kid Capri, so it made sense for them to talk to him. She was asking the questions, and he said something that stuck with me, hit me like a ton of bricks, and it just made the light bulb go off in my head. Shada said, as long as there are people creating music, there's always going to be a need for somebody to play it. And I was like, whoa, I'm going to be a DJ. That's it. That put the battery in my back, and I was off. I was like, all right, that made total sense. Him saying that one thing was the motivation I needed to actually start taking it serious. I would be playing around with it because I thought it was cool. But I was like, you know what? I could probably do this for real. You know what I mean? I could do this. I spent a lot of time playing drums in church. So I kind of understood rhythm and syncopation. I knew what I liked and I knew stuff that made me move. And I figured like if I'm the guy that's dancing all the time and this song makes me want to dance, Nine times out of ten, if I play it for somebody else, they're going to want to dance, too. In my mind, that was the logic I was using to justify me setting myself off on a career path as a DJ. So you're in school. Did you graduate did you, or did you no, I didn't finish? finish? I would have I graduated in 2001 had I graduated. I went to college for four years, though. I was a senior when I dropped out. <laughs> you were, like, so close. Was it because the music game was so popping? or you're just Nah, starting? man. I was paying for it, but I was paying for it because I was making so much money DJing. And I was like, man, this don't make no damn sense. I'm going to DJ for the rest of my life. What's the point? You know? Oh, you already committed. Like, this is it. Yeah, I'm not going to oh, do anything I'm not doing anything else. I made that commitment probably when I was 19 years old. I was like, this is what I'm doing. This is it. You know what I mean? Once I started rolling or whatever, I got to be a senior in school. By this time, I moved back to Chattanooga, and I was going to school at the local state university there, University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, where Terrell Owens played. He played ball at the school I went to. Anyway, by this time, when I was a senior in school, I was working so much, and I had double work. It was good, cool for me because I was working locally because I'm from there, and I was getting all the college work, too. So I was working double time, and I had a job. I had two jobs, actually. I was working at Foot Locker and I was working at this record store called Cash Music. I was straight. I was straight. Like 19, 21 years old, I'm making all this money and I was paying for school and I wasn't going to class at all, bro. I wasn't going to class at all. I would just be hanging out on campus. But I always say that I'm happy I went to college and I don't mind that I paid all that money because I paid all that money. My education wasn't academic. It was social. Being around all those people and learning how to deal with different types of people from different areas and different places and different parts of the country, all of that I took into being a DJ and applied it to being a DJ to make me a better DJ. Even though I don't have a degree, I did get educated while I was in college. It's just my education was of a different type 
than what you would normally think of when you say I went to college to get an education. Like I just didn't get a degree, you know? Yeah. It's, people say there's hard skills and there's soft skills mm -hmm. and hard skills are very attainable with discipline, but soft skills, you just got to have that finesse, that mm -hmm. charm that you obviously did. So at these parties and you're meeting all these people, paint the picture about these parties and what were songs that you would play and just this whole scene. You know, this is the thing about HBCU parties, man. It depends on where you at. The songs that work at Florida and m might not be the same songs that work at Tennessee State. The songs that work at Clark Atlanta University might not be the same songs that work at Grambling. You know what I mean? It just depends on where you are. And where I was, Memphis music was pretty much a dominant rap culture in Tennessee because that's where most, if not all, the rappers that were making regional and national noise, they were all coming from Memphis. I mean, you had 3-6 Mafia, A-Ball, MJG, of course, but then others like Play a Fly, Kingpin, Skinny Pimp, DJ Squeaky, Tommy Wright Third, Criminal Main, Project Players. Those records would go crazy. In Memphis or at your HBCU? Oh, uh, in both. In Memphis is where that's where the, all that music originated. But you go to Tennessee State, Tennessee State and Fisk, those are the two big HBCUs in Nashville. Those records would go up there. They would go at the parties at Lane with the time I was there because Lane College is in Jackson, Tennessee. And Jackson, Tennessee is about 45 miles east of Memphis. It's real close to Memphis. It's not very far at all. So anything that was coming out of Memphis would work at Lane also. And then you got Knoxville College. And, you know, Memphis is a black city. It's a real black-ass city, just like Atlanta is. So most of the black people that were going to college Nine times out of 10, the black population at all the schools in Tennessee, the PWIs and the H or the HBCUs, obviously, but the PWIs also, all the black population typically were people from Memphis. So they would bring their culture with them wherever they went. So it would penetrate throughout the whole state. So Memphis dominated everything pretty much. Yeah, Memphis music definitely dominated everything. Like, that's the stuff that would cut through the fastest. There would be times where the other people would pop up, like Starlito, when he was still going by All-Star back then. But, you know, he had a record that cut through called Grey Goose. But, and, you know, that tore up Nashville and that went both ways. Like his stuff went to Memphis, down to Chattanooga, up to Knoxville, you know. Now, is having like a statewide hit a big deal in Tennessee? Is that like a rare thing? It, it was it? then. It was then. You know, I mean, now it, times are different now because, you know, times are different. But, yeah. <laughs> but back then, I'll give you an example. When Yo Gotti was on his come up, he had this record called Sell My Dope that just hit hard all over the state. And that one record is what gave him the foundation to get to like the major level. That record was live in Tennessee, like super live in Tennessee for probably about a year and a half before it got outside of our region. And then when it got outside of our region, it just swelled and it kept swelling and it kept swelling. And then all of a sudden he signed a TVT. You know what I mean? Back then in the late 90s and early 2000s, having a statewide hit meant that you could possibly go on to, you know, bigger and better things. Get that illustrious neon green TVT sleeve. Oh, man, I, I, got, <laughs> I got plenty of them over here on this shelf over here. Yo, shout out to my man DJ Marvel. He did this thing where he taped them all together. As Made a like green a, screen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was <laughs> like, oh, shit, I got a teacher Moses. I have a, I have a few in my collection, but it was, I don't have them all. Hold on, yeah. hold on, little John, hold on, you ain't twins. Yeah, so I think Pitbull was on that. Yeah, Pitbull, I think some of those. Yeah. If Pitbull. I have those records still, they're at my parents' house, like in the garage. But <laughs> I like how you were talking about, you know, all these like regional artists at a certain time. And I want to get a crash course history on like the Southern mixtape game. My mixtape career, my mixtapes were out in the streets, but I wasn't really out in the streets. I was using the internet as like my distribution platform. But using the internet 
to get my tapes out into the street. My whole mixtape career was more so when the mixtape websites were a thing. So like back when I was doing the mixtape things real heavy, if your mixtape got on the top row of mixunit.com, that was like going number one on Billboard for a mixtape DJ. You know what I mean? So that's kind of where I was at with it. That meant that your stuff would probably sell in like flea markets and, you know, little mom and pop record shops and gas stations and all that kind of shit. It was a good thing for your shit to get bootleg because if you got bootleg, that means people are buying it. You know what I mean? There were some stores and shops you could go to and get the authentic and people would do that. I remember one time I went to Columbus, Georgia randomly for something and I stopped at a gas station. I saw one of my mixtapes. It was the happiest day of my life. <laughs> I was like, hell yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I, I mean, they fucking with me. Yeah, tell me more like the nuts and bolts because what was the first one? What was the whole process and what were the things you were doing? The first one I did, man, I can't even, I don't even remember my first one, to be honest with you. Like, I think the very first actual mixtape I did where I put it out, like out, out, I wasn't working for Ozone at the time, but I was friendly with the owner of the Ozone magazine, this woman named Julia Beverly. She would ask me, you know, Southern hip hop questions because that's what she was doing and she was trying to learn about it and make sure she knew her history because she wanted to put all the stuff in the book and she wanted to be as accurate as possible. She would ask people like myself and others, you know what I mean? Who is this? Who should I be checking for? You know, all this kind of stuff. And she had asked me to do something. I think it was like a Best of Dave Abana mixtape. And this was like right when Like a Pimp hit, you know. So this is 2003. So this is how you know a real Southern DJ versus somebody that's front. A real Southern DJ would have the Like a Pimp 12-inch that has the yellow sticker. Somebody that's front will have the Like a Pimp 12-inch that came from Universal. I mean, it really don't matter in the grand scheme of things because it's literally the exact same thing on both 12 inches, so you're not going to get no extra thing. But it's like a badge of honor if you got the like a pimp 12 inch with the yellow sticker, the one that Banner would hand you himself, the one that Banner would drive to you in that Astro van that used to drive around all the time, all throughout the South. If Banner handed you one of them, then you meant something. You know what I mean? But anyway, I think I did a tape that she put in the book, in the magazine, rather, that was like a best of. And then I was like, hmm, I could probably do that more. You know what I mean? I started paying attention to um, people like DJ Jelly down here, who is a legend, a legend, legend, especially in the mixtape game. DJ Jelly is like a mixtape icon. And I would pay attention to what he was doing. And like I said, I spent time working at a music shop back home. I would see the stuff that would come in on consignment, like DJ Jelly, DJ C. Wiz from Nashville, DJ Reggie Reg from Nashville, the King Edward J tapes that would come in from Atlanta. I would just see all that stuff come into our store on consignment. And I see that stuff flying off the shelf. I'm like, man, these dudes are DJing. Just said, you know, they're just making these mixes. And like, I'm doing that at home, just trying to practice. If I record it and put it out, maybe I can make me a little bread too. So I started doing that. And then I did another one. And I did another one. And they were starting to catch on. And then, like I said, I was frequently using the internet. I eventually became my distribution platform, but I was using it as a kind of tool of promotion at the time, too, just to let everybody know what I was doing. And that's when I met Mick. Well, he was Mick Boogie back then, but he's Mick now. He was real heavy in the mixtapes, too. Like, super heavy. We got along because we both kind of like nerdy dudes. 
So we got along quickly and he was doing the same thing. So the music was like shooting up. That was like uh, becoming the flavor of the month or, you know, the music du jour of the entire music industry. So he was trying to learn about Southern music. So he would ask me questions like Julie would ask me questions and I'd give him game and he would give me game about how mixtape distribution and stuff would work on the internet. He's probably the primary reason I was as successful as I was in the mixtape game because all of the game that he gave me, I would apply and I saw that work. Anytime I would ask him anything, he was like, all right, this is the person you talk to for distribution. This is the person you talk to to get yourself on this site. This is the person you talk to for graphic design. This is the person you talk to about getting your CDs pressed. He would give me all this game. So I'm really thankful for him. Like anytime I talk about my time working heavy in mixtapes, I always want to acknowledge him because my success as a mixtape DJ is very, very tied to all the wisdom that he shared with me. But that's how I learned. You know, I learned from trial and error and I met him and he gave me all this extra game. And then I just started applying the stuff he gave me and started going up and up and up and up and up. So to be thorough, it was started you just kind of playing music that's already out there. At what point do you start kind of working with artists and do like, yo, I'm just hosting your tape and mixing it? I just happened when it started happening. Oh, you can get a rapper to host your tape? Wow, okay. All right, so let's figure that out. And then I just started using my connections. People that I would know, I knew Julia Beverly. She would interview all these people for the magazine. And I say, hey, man, who do I talk to if I want to get a drop from UGK or if I want to get a drop from Boosie or Ludacris or whatever? And she would point me in the direction I needed to go. And sometimes I strike out. Sometimes I get what I needed. Once I got what I needed, I'd apply it and I'd make the tape, put the tape out. Tape does well. Then I have a new relationship with this person because the tape did well. I just built and built on top of that. If you had a one choice CD mix to pick out of all of them that you're still proud of, that still has stood the test of time, what would it be? Mm. Probably the tape I did with Talia Kweli. The reason why is because I brought Talia into my world. I had him rapping on Southern beats. Like I got him rapping over like 8-Ball of MJG and 3-6 Mafia beats. Was he hesitant? Or is he like, I'll do it? No, I was shocked. I was in extreme shock. It was a straight up cold call. And I just reached out. And uh, I don't even know how I reached out. I think I just emailed him. I think I found his email from somewhere. And I just straight up emailed him. like, yo, my name is Wiley. I do these tapes. Here's a couple that I've done before. I'm a big fan. I love if you host it. The one reason I approached him is because Kwali was one of the people that, for lack of a better term, people in backpack world respected. But he was one of the people in that world that also respected Southern rap music. That's one of the reasons I reached out to him, because I knew he understood the importance of a UGK. He understood the importance of an A-Ball, MJG, all of that. And he didn't shit on it. That's one of the reasons I reached out to him. So when I did, I was like, I'm a Southern guy from Tennessee. I do this, you know, I love if you get down. And he just replies like, sure, man, I'm with it. I was like, what? (laughs) You know, we put it together. Yeah, you know, I want to talk about perceptions right here because I saw you retweet something recently and it really kind of got my wheels spinning about perception and how other people can see an artist. And I'm going to read you the tweet. Oh, shit. <laughs> I've been saying some wild shit on Twitter, man. I don't know <laughs> no, why. No, man. I mean, a lot of brave talk, but again, I'm not a baseball guy. So yeah, like, yo, yeah. I'm, I, just, I don't even know. But I'm going to read this. No, but Frill, you know how insulting it is to feel like you have to prove to non-black DJs that you, a black person, can play house, techno, electronic shit. Can you elaborate on that, your thoughts? 
the quote resonated with me because it's true. There's a perception that black DJs can't necessarily play house and techno and things of that sort, which is crazy to me because you know who created house music and techno music? Black people. You know what I'm saying? Like, what? In my world, I think the way that would apply to me is if somebody like some young white kid that thinks trap music is only the stuff they heard Diplo play or mm-hmm. whoever. or Festival trap. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Like, that is not trap music. Trap beats. I can make a trap beat. That don't make no damn sense. I mean, trap music is a totally different thing from what that perception of it is. I understood what he was saying, and that's kind of how it would apply to me. Because trap music ain't nothing but Southern rap music. That's all it is, you know? But yeah, man, I thought that quote was timely and on point. I don't even know who that person was, like I said, but I retweeted it. And he's clearly a DJ somewhere who was venting some frustration and some frustration that I understand, you know? Yeah. When people think about Wally Sparks, do you feel there's like a pro and con of like the thinking, oh, they know me as this, but I can also do this. Is that something you kind of wrestle with or you just like, yo, I just... It's definitely I wrestle with. Like I wrestle with being pigeonholed as a Southern guy because I wear it on my chest, you know, and I'm real loud about it. I was talking to Corey Towns in a a interview that I had with him and he was like, he's like, one of the things I like about you is you like really, really proud to be Southern. And I'm like, hey man, you know, look, this is the way I am. I've been down South my whole life. I ain't going to act like I ain't been down South my whole life, you know. There were times in my life as a teenager and young man where I tried to front like I was somewhere else. I tried to talk with a fake New York accent. You know what I mean? I didn't understand. But now, you know, now that I got to my big age that I'm at now and I understand who I actually am as a person, I am who I am. I've always been who I am. There's no reason for me not to be who I am. You know what I'm saying? As far as it applies to DJing, people know I do the South shit really good. People know that. And a lot of times when they hire me to do things, they want me to come do the South shit because I do it good, which is fine, you know, but I definitely struggle with being pigeonholed because that just ain't, that is a, a part of me, but that ain't all of me. I'm a big R&B guy, which is kind of how I ended up starting the groove because I just got so sick of rap music. You know, I just wanted to play R&B all the time. And I've always been an R&B head since I was a young boy. I've always been an R&B head. And I just be wanting to show people like, look, man, just because I do this one thing good don't mean I can't do other stuff. You know what I yeah. mean? I like how you're trying to pivot and trying to fight that. Look at your resume and doing my homework on you. You have a couple of parties. You have the groove, which is the R&B party, which is kind of your way to kind of showcase your R&B love, correct? Yes, very much. And you got you got Flavor. Right. You got Michael and Glisten. Yeah. And you got Boogie. Those are all very distinct, different themed parties. So I think R&B parties are very popular right now you know like i said i saw you on cuffin and i've done it and there's other r&b parties hopping across the world and the united states give me like the nucleus and, and the recipe of your r&b party the groove basically i just like i said man I, I spent so much time on tour dealing with rap music and rappers not to not create because chris my brother like i'd never really had an issue with him at all it's just we had to deal with rappers you know what i mean I just got burnt out, man. I wanted to play stuff that made me feel good and R&B music made me feel good. So I just thought, I just decided, you know what, man? What if I just throw a party where I don't play no rap music at all? I ain't going to play no rap music, like none. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to play stuff that make me feel good, made me smile and make me want to dance. That's kind of how that started. And that's been the manifesto for the groove ever since it started. We play R&B music. Yeah, where people at first like, yo, are you going to play any rap, Wally? There would be times where 
we would have a full house, three, four, five hundred people in a small venue, and dudes would be in there when they've been in there for an hour and a half, and we ain't played nothing but R&B music for this whole hour and a half, and they'd be like, "Yo, bro, can you play that new Future?" I'd be like, "Bro, come on, like, think about what you're saying." You know what I'm saying? Like, come on, the party is already jumping. Yeah. It's gonna be, it's gonna be way like, it's gonna be way live. Eh, fuck out my face, bro. This is R and B party. You know what I'm saying? You in the wrong place. There are plenty of other places. You can go upstairs. You can go upstairs to the venue right above us and get what you want. It ain't happening down here. You know what I'm saying? Because we play R and B music. And a, a thing that was important to me is that I wanted to play straight up traditional R and B music. Not flips, not remixes and edits. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. I wanted it to be straight up, legitimate, authentic R&B music. You know what I mean? At the groove, it's likely that you would hear, you know, I know they about to do the, the verses on Sunday, but you would hear Patti LaBelle and Gladys Knight with no problem at peak hours. You know what I mean? Not at the beginning of the night when you're trying to warm up. I'm talking about like 1 a.m. If you want me to at 1 a.m. Like ballads and shit. Like, you know, I mean, I fuck around, play goddamn Choose and Love by the Isley Brothers at 1.30 and turn the party up. You know what I'm saying? That was important to me. You know what I mean? That was really important to me about how the party got played. You know? Yeah, I, I appreciate that because in this kind of new wave of R&B parties, they say they're R&B parties and you go and they're just playing like hip-hop hits. Like not even hip hop hits with like an R and B chorus or a- they stand they murder ink bag for the whole time. They playing all the Ja Rule and the Shanti duets. If I could talk my shit, that's kind of how I see most R and B parties go. They eventually mutate into a Shanti, a Shanti murder ink. Bro, you and my partner Xavier Black would get along swimming. Oh no, I, yo, uh, Xavier Black, he sent me an edit pack. We traded edit pack, so and yeah, that's my brother. Y'all would get along because he yeah. the same way. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm an R&B guy, so I'm like, yo, there, you can play like so much new shit. And then there's a lot of new R&B that's up-tempo, like the mm-hmm. internet, Anderson Pack and Mac DeMarco, and right. that's still R&B. So I'm always a little disappointed. And th- no, it's not even the, the Murder Inc. back. Like these, some of these parties that I, uh, I'll see or, or listen to mixes, like they're just playing rap hits. And I'm always like, just call it a party. Just call man. it a it's, party. It's okay. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. The expression is fine. I feel like, yo, you're doing R&B a disservice. Which yeah, that's, that's, that's why with the groove, I wanted to set what we did apart. You know, like yeah. you come in here to hear real R&B music. You're going to get the up-tempo music, but R&B music, ballads are important to R&B music. So you're going to get a bunch of ballads too. You know what I mean? And yeah. we're still going to party. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. And uh, I was mentioning your whole resume of parties. And I think what caught my eye was the roller disco party, the roller booger party that you've been doing online. Now, Here's the thing. I'm a big disco and 80s R&B guy. And I think for the past five years, I've been seeing, I finally got hip to how roller boogie and roller skating is like big part of like, you know, black culture across the whole nation. South, out here in the West Coast. Yeah, really. What songs are y'all playing? Because I, I would think I'm going to go in there and play GQ Disco Nights or <laughs> Gladys Knight, uh, Save the Love for Me over time, yeah, whatever. Yeah, something like that, you know. Save the overtime for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking to play, but I could be wrong. But uh, before we get you playing the right shit, my man Jeremy Avalon did uh he did like a roller skating set on the Groove Twitch channel last night. We did a, a roller skating party. It was it was kind of like a one off. It was still the Groove, but it was like a special edition of the Groove. But as far as like R&B and like disco jams that get played and skate rinks, you got like 
you mentioned uh, Saved Overtime by Gladys Knight. Then you got like um, all the 112 BPM New York funk, like Sheaf and Odyssey and the BB and Q band and all that kind of stuff. Me and John are nodding our heads right now. That's our <laughs> shit. That's our yeah, shit. And then you got like stuff like um, Set It Off, which is a real big one, like by Strife. That's a real big one in Atlanta. Like that's a real big record in Atlanta. Like even so much so that Andre Three Thousand uh, mentioned it on uh, Spotty Oldie Delicious. He was like, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You got one thing on this ill competing with Set It Off on the left. He was talking about being the skate rink. He was talking about being the Cascade. I never realized that. You're talking about Set It Off. You're talking about the Strike Song. That's how big of a song that was in Atlanta and how it's such a staple of Atlanta culture. That's, I mean, shit. I mean, Lil John even kind of covered it when he did that, uh, I Like Them Girls. I, that's, that's Set It Off. That record is Set It Off. He just redid Set It Off again and just turned it into like a crunk song. That's a real big staple. Then there's a, uh, there's a record by, I think they from Florida. This is literally the only song by them I've ever heard, but it was by a group called BVSMP song called I Need You. That's like a big, big skate rink, like a skate rink classic, like big time. You know what I mean? In Atlanta or all over? I mean, it really is in Atlanta, but I think it might be all over the Southeast. You know what I mean? At least at least Tennessee, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, and Mississippi. You know what I mean? It was big in Chattanooga. It was big in Memphis, and it was really, really big in Atlanta. I learned that when I got here. When I first heard that record, I thought it was like some Memphis shit. And then when I got down here and I realized like, oh, shit, y'all, y'all been on this down here, too. You know what I mean? I realized they had been on this since Freaknik when it came out. You know what I mean? But that's like a really big record. But all those jams are like unique to skating culture. Those are just like really big tunes that a lot of people might not be familiar with. They mean different things to different people. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about skating culture that's so big in the South, Atlanta, and Memphis, as you referenced earlier? Is it there's space to have a roller skating rink? I mean, I, I think just black people having fun and not having to worry about no other bullshit. I think that's pretty much what it is, bro. You know what I mean? I think just people having fun. It's rhythm. It's movement. It's rhythm, movement, and music all in one. You know what I mean? I think it's just a place for people to just really have fun. I know this seems like a simple answer, but I feel like that's probably just what it is. Cascade is probably the most popular skating rink in Atlanta. Like, there are a few. Like, you know, you got Cascade and you got Golden Glide over on the east side. But Cascade is probably the most popular skating rink in Atlanta for all the reasons. For all the reasons that we just talked about. That was just the cultural hangout. You can't really talk about going to the skating rink in Atlanta without mentioning Cascade. Cascade is a cultural pillar. It still is today. Like, when brands... HBO did something for, uh, I don't know if it was Insecure, but I think it was Insecure. But they did like an activation in Atlanta and they wanted to base it around skating. They did it at Cascade because that's where you got to do it at. If you wanted to be all the way authentic, that's where you do it. You know, Cascade is the spot. Sunday night is where it's at. Like the DJ that's been in Cascade on Sunday night, I don't even know who this gentleman is, but he's been there forever. And he's not giving up his seat and he shouldn't give up his seat because he's a part of culture. You might go there and you know you're going to hear the same thing every time, but you're going to have the same fun you have every time you go. My next question was like, does new songs, new artists, do they get kind of... Oh, yeah. they. But you're still going to get what you're going to get. You're going to get set it off and future. In the- <laughs> yeah. That's kind of the way I play. That's kind of the way I play as a DJ. I kind of take that combination. I like to fancy myself as a kind of person that can take parts of new culture and parts of old culture and blend them together to make a whole room I can educate and I can make sure people are having the fun that they came to have at the same time. You know, with all these years of experience underneath your belt, what do you think really is a great 
artist as a DJ? What makes a good DJ? Uh, I think the really, really, really good DJs are all music lovers, lovers of music across genre that like all sorts of music and can appreciate every type of music. I think those kind of people make the best DJs. Not necessarily skilled, because they're people that are nasty on the turntables, can't read a crowd for, say, they got damn life. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I think the best DJs are also people, people. I feel like I'm a good people person. I think good DJs are people, people. You know what I mean? They understand human behavior on a visceral level. And I think that kind of thing gives them the ability to know how to look at a crowd and read emotion on people's faces and understand what it is they need at that moment. And a good DJ can dig in their bag and give that to them. You mentioned soft skills. Soft skilled people are the kind of people that make good DJs because, you know, even though we are controlling the room, we have to be charming because we are responsible for the emotion of a large group of people at one time. If you can't manage that well, then you're not going to be able to be successful as a DJ. Hmm. Okay. Well, and this brings me to my next question. So what was DJing like for somebody that's 40 years old pre-COVID? What is life like now as being 40-year-old and a DJ with COVID going on? So before it was great. Even with all the struggle and everything that I had to deal with, I would go through every single bit of it again because I just love what I do. I love it. I can't get enough of it. I can't see myself doing anything other than what I've been doing for the past two years, right? It was great. And now, post-quarantine or whatever, initially, I thought it was the end of the world. My world's going to come crashing down on me. But I've since learned to realize that I might be in a better position now than I was in. I told a partner of mine, man, one of the worst things that could ever happen to somebody like me was for me allowed to learn that there was a way for me to DJ and play music that I like without any eruption from my home and be able to monetize it. <laughs> I was like, bro, man, I, I might never leave the house. But this new normal that we in right now, everybody's a bedroom DJ, everybody's on a level playing field all over again. I think it's good for multiple reasons. One reason is because, like I said, we have the freedom to be the music lovers that we actually are. And we have the freedom and the latitude to play the things that we actually like and share them with people who actually like them too. A second reason why I think it might be better is because there was a lot of bad DJing going on before COVID hit. And there were a lot of people out here working, whole lot of people out here working that just wasn't good DJs. And, you know, I ain't knocking their hustle, get your money, do your thing. You find somebody that was foolish enough to pay you a whole bunch of money to do something you wasn't no good at, props to you. But now that everybody is on a level playing field again, people who are tried and true, that's from the birth to the turf with this shit, people that are hardcore and passionate about it, we going to be fine. All them other people that were just doing it as a hobby and a quick little money grab or whatever, they all getting weeded out. And the people who were working that thought that they were at one certain skill level because they were working, you know what I mean? Those people are being exposed and they're realizing that, oh, my skills ain't as sharp as I probably thought they were. This might not be the thing for me. I might need to on to something else. That's another fringe benefit of everybody being on a level playing field again and everybody having to do the same thing that everybody else is doing. Like the greatest DJ in the world, DJ Jazzy Jeff, is doing the exact same thing that I'm doing in my house. He's just in his house. 
I'm in my house, he in his house, but we doing the same thing. We both DJing online, you know? To quote the great Randy Savage, the cream is rising to the top. Oh yeah, brother. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, brother. <laughs> I always wanted to ask this to DJs who are also wrestling aficionados. Like if you had to describe your DJ style to a wrestler, let me know who would that be? My DJing would probably be more like a, a guy like Chris Jericho who can adapt to anything. Oh, you know what shit. I'm saying? Like okay. I can do main event stuff. I can open the show. I can do the mid card. I can do it all. And I change with the times. You know what I mean? When I need to reinvent myself, I figure out a way to reinvent myself. You know, I went from doing college parties to doing mixtapes, from mixtapes to touring Big Crit, from Big Crit to radio, from radio to moving to Atlanta and doing the parties here, going from uh, the regular club shit to throwing my own events, going from being the Southern rap guy to the R&B guy. Chris Jericho is like that too. Whatever is necessary for what he needs to do at the time, he's able to maneuver and reinvent himself in that sort of way and still maintain his legitimacy as a respected professional. Yeah, I think that's a true thing for a lot of people, just any profession, the adapting and doing it in a tasteful where you don't look like a clown trying to chase the bag or, or, or what have you. You mentioned Crit. Did you see Crit's talent and was thinking like, oh, if working with him is going to expand my brand or is he just came to you? Nah, I wouldn't even think about that. I wouldn't think about me at all when Crit was brought to me. I, I just felt like he needed to be heard by more people. I completely removed myself from the equation at all. I wouldn't even think about using him as any kind of stepping stool to embolden my brand in any way. It was all about him. I wanted people to hear him. He's one of the few artists that I heard and immediately felt like this is a guy that could change. He could shift culture in a good yeah, way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I heard that from the very first time that I was introduced to his music. I knew it immediately. And I was like, Mm -hmm. This guy is something special and I want to do anything I can to make sure that he is heard by as many people as can be heard by. You know what I mean? Yeah. The reason why that really resonates with me, because I know that feeling when you find an artist or a producer and you're like, yo, there's something about this guy you, or them, yeah. or this group, this woman are telling them because just for the culture. And since you just said you're in this interview, you're a, a music lover first. Mm -hmm. You know, it makes sense that that's how you saw it. So you re you heard his music and you're like, I need to work with this guy or introduce me or... or My friend of mine, a colleague of mine named DJ Folk, who uh, eventually ended up being one of Jeezy's personal A&Rs. He's a really good follow on Twitter too. So follow DJ Folk on Twitter. But DJ Folk, he and I, again, we were talking like on... This is back in the AOL Instant Messenger days on the, the AIM days. We would be talking shit, chopping it up, and he would be putting me on music. I put him on music or whatever. And he sent me a crit song called I Just Touched Down. And he's like, check this out. Immediately, I was blown away by it. I was like, yo, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. I played that song 10, 15, maybe 20 times in a row. You know what I mean? And then I hit him back. I was like, yo, this is the greatest shit I've ever heard. And he was like, man, I knew you would like it. That's why I sent it to you, because I knew you would like it. He understood what my sensibilities were musically. And then after that, I just went out and was like, all right, man, I'm going to go find this guy. I went on MySpace, snooping around and found him, sent him a message on MySpace. And it was like, this was off one song. This is off one song. I'd never heard anything other than this one song. And Folk had already done, I think he'd already done two mixtapes with Crit prior to this already. But I had only heard the one song he had sent me. But off that one song, I was so geeked up off that one song that I just went, it was like, yo, 
I am now your biggest fan and I want to work with you and I want to help you get heard as best. Whatever I can do that's in my capacity to do so, I want to help make sure that other people hear this because this needs to be heard. You know what I mean? That's kind of how I, my relationship with Chris started. You know, it was just like that. Folk played me the song. I heard the song. I loved it. I went on MySpace, saw Crit out, reached out to him, told him I was a fan, said I would love to work with you. He was like, you want to work with me? I was like, yes, I want to work with you. And that's just kind of how it started, you know? Yeah, you know, my wheels are turning right now and I'm going to be a little self-indulgent. So I'm working with an artist out of Houston. He goes by Sadiq. Yeah, we did an EP. I made all the beats. He's not really known, but very much to how what you said about Crit, you hear his voice, you hear his flow, and you're like, yo, there's something special about this. So give me some game for me personally, maybe for other people that are in the same position where they're working with a new artist that they love, they're, they're championing them. I mean, what are some things to avoid and what are some things to maybe do that we want to think of naturally? Make sure that the artist that you're working with stays working and make sure that they stay authentically themselves and not get caught up in what's going on around them. Make sure that you reiterate to them that the reason that you're working with them is because of what they were doing before you got to them. Keep doing what you were doing before I got to you because that's what got me here. I mean, beyond that, just make sure that they stand true to themselves. That's basically the best game I can give you is make sure that the artist that you're working with is staying 100% authentic with themselves because that is what's going to make them be as unique as they possibly can. You know, they can't be nobody but themselves. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of weight to what you said because like Crit, last time I checked, Crit, if I'm wrong, like he's still on Def Jam. No, no, he's been off Def Jam for a while. He's been off Def Jam since 2015. He's been off, he's been off yeah. for a few years. But his career is still like, it's been like active and he has a following yeah. and he's, he's still like, he's still a big deal. Like he's been true to his art form. Like his music has been what it's been. He's, I felt rappers of his era, they kind of blew up. They started doing a bunch of goofy shit and now they're nowhere to yeah. be found. I mean, even, even the guys that are his peers that everyone says that he should be in a conversation with, like the Kendrick Lamars and the J. Coles of the world, both of them have stepped into, I mean, not that they haven't been authentic to themselves. They've both stepped into... I guess pop world would be, you know what I mean? Like, you know, doing something specific for radio. And Crit has never really done that. Even the songs that you can kind of perceive be radio songs that Crit made, there's still something authentically Southern about them. Yeah, like even the joint with like Lloyd right, or, right. or so, um, yeah, that, random stuff. I'm, I'm just thinking of the stuff in my Serato that I have. It's like, it's still Crit. It's not like, yo. I'm yeah, gonna- he's not really doing anything outside the realm of himself. Like, if I told you, Here's a crit song that's produced by Banny Fresh that samples back that ass up. You would think it's gonna be like some straight southern shit. But when you hear it, it sounds all pretty because it's got the guy sample in it or whatever, but it's still got the bounce. Obviously, because Manny Fresh produced it, you know what I mean? And it's still authentically southern. It's a producer from New Orleans, an artist from Mississippi, and a singer from Atlanta. Still authentically southern. Yeah, I wanted to ask that because you know you've been very forthright about your age, and I think people in entertainment, maybe in hip hop or DJ, we kind of have this weird like hang up about age. Yeah, I ain't never been hung up on no shit like that, man. I am who I am. Yeah, yeah. So being who you are, I have to ask, you know, in these times, like everything from social unrest to COVID, to the election to natural disasters, like what is the DJ's role in all this? You know, like where do we fit? I think we're vessels for healing for other people. That's what I think we are. You know, I think we're here to provide some space for people to take some of the weight off their shoulders, even if it's an hour, even if it's 30 minutes, just some peace and some joy. You know what I mean? Because 
even with all the bullshit that's flying around, all the bullshit that's going on in the world, I see joy as a weapon. And I approach my life like that. I'm here because I know you pissed off. I want to give you a piece of happiness so you can still realize that that part of you is still there and still valid. I tend to view what we do as DJs. We're on the front line of a different type of battle. We're battling to help people not lose themselves emotionally. Man, that was great. Thank you for sharing that. That's some real shit. I think that's something that gets lost in the day-to-day grind of being an independent artist. Mm -hmm. It gets lost in pre-COVID times and whatever we're in right now. And just so real, man. Is that something you kind of came out the gate with or that's something you've kind of realized in your old age and the wisdom that you've acquired? I think that's just me living life, man. My dad is a jolly dude, man. My dad is a real jolly fella. You know what I mean? You happy dude. And... I think that just kind of got poured into me. I'm a preacher's kid. My dad a preacher. And his way of reaching people is standing in the pulpit and talking to people about God. My way of reaching people is putting them on the dance floor and have them shake their ass. We reaching people just in different ways. I just think that's the way we was built. As I get older, you know, I'm not like a super religious dude like that, like my pop. But I do think that both of us have been blessed with a gift to be able to connect with people. They just manifested in different ways. He run his mouthpiece, and I run my mouthpiece on the microphone when I'm talking shit, you know what I mean? But uh-huh. He run his mouth, and he teach the Bible. I run my mouth, and I play records. Damn, dude. Yeah, so at the end of every episode, we always like to ask, like, what's a song that kind of gets you through these days right now? And I think now it's very important. Is there a track or an artist that lets you get out of bed? Oh, shit. Hold on. I'm, I'm, I'm looking through my Spotify trying to see what I've been playing. I, be, I, I got the Southern Soul playlist I've been on for a while. Oh, nice. Like Bobby Womack. And yeah, Bobby. man. Bobby Womack, Bobby Blue Blend, Denise LaSalle, Mel Waiters. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of Tom Mish lately. You know what I mean? Oh, Tom Mish is true. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what's, the, what's, the, what's the shit he did with the drummer? The Houston uh, Days. Yeah, I've been, I've been on that. That's, I've, been, I've been listening okay. to that a lot. I don't even know what the name of the songs. I just put that shit on. Yeah, that. man. Thank you so much for your time. And Thank just, you. Yeah, I enjoyed this very much, man. This is great. I'm happy. I'm a fan of this podcast. I told your partner, John, that I've been subscribing for a long time. So this was a, a fantastic opportunity for me. And I'm very, very grateful that you all reached out and thought enough of me to have me come on and talk some shit. Yo, you're now a friend of the show. You could talk to John about wrestling. You could talk to me about Disco Boogie right the program. Right on. You are a friend of the show and you're always a welcome to San Francisco. 2096 when you're allowed to fly again. <laughs> Last time I was out there, I think I played Slims with Crit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yo. Oh, my God, man. So, in this pandemic, as you know, a lot of clubs are shutting down. They're just doing some other shit. It got bought out by this hella cheesy, like, bottle service club. Oh, no. And it's not going to be Slims. I'll give you $10. I'll, get, I'll buy 10 subscriptions on your Twitch channel. You can guess the name of what it's now going to be called. Uh, it's a phrase by a rapper who claims Atlanta, but he's not. But he's not from Atlanta? He doesn't claim Atlanta, but he definitely has appropriated Atlanta hip-hop. Hmm, where are you from? If I tell you, you're going to know. Let's just say he's from a place where they have health insurance. Oh, shit. Is it, uh, as a YOLO? Yo, shit! No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Motherfucker, you're hey, right. YOLO, that's crazy.
Oh, but I did the process of elimination. Now it's like, all right, somebody appropriated, I right, a rapper who appropriates, all right. They use like a phrase. I'm like, all right. They use like oh, the, the health insurance hint is the one that gave it away. Then I was like, health insurance. I was like, Canada, Canada, Drake, YOLO. You know what I'm saying? Oh my God. Yo, yes. Hey, that's my big ass IQ, man. That's my that's my three point seven grade point average, man. That's why that's that's why I that's why I can you know talk my way out of going to motherfucking class all the time. You know what I'm saying? I thought I had you. I because the, the look on your face, you were like genuinely hey, like, confused. I, I was processing, man. My wheels was turning. I was I was thinking. I was thinking my way through it. You know? Holy shit. Well, I'm a man of my word. Did I say five or ten? ten I can't remember. Ten, ten subs, baby. <laughs> yeah, I'm a man of my word. I will gladly honor that because you also you're a great dude and you, you gave us some awesome tidbits here on today's uh, opening segment. Right anything you want to add? We, we talked a lot about anything you want to mention real quick before we wrap it up. Oh. Motherfucker. <laughs> hey, look, I'm on all social media platforms at DJ Wally Sparks, DJ W-A-L-L-Y-S-P-A-R-K-S. Please follow me. Please subscribe to my Twitch channel. Also, please subscribe to the Groove ATL Twitch and thegrooveatl.com. You can follow all uh, their social media platforms at the Groove ATL. Shout out to Xavier Black. Shout out to DJ Hourglass. Shout out- oh, Hourglass in the crew. That's right. Shout out to her. She's dope. She's dope. And she plays my edits too. I, I appreciate the support. Let it be known right I'm going to cut a promo. Let it be known right now. DJ Hourglass is a superstar. She is the greatest DJ coming out of Atlanta in 2020. And no one else is seeing DJ Hourglass. DJ Hourglass is by far the most important DJ to ever come out of Atlanta, Georgia since Coca-Cola. <laughs> oh, my God. All right, my bad. Yeah, On that man. note, Wally Sparks. Thank you.